brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, folks. Doing the thing from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And while NASA pretends to send RC cars covered in aluminum foil to Mars and Boston Dynamics tries to pass off CGI robot dancing videos as real, we know the biggest advancements are likely to involve the technologies and systems they'll never fully disclose but have been around for decades. Ether physics, counter-rotation, plasma dynamics, and electrogravitics. Buzzwords we've heard about being in use since the time of Tesla and based on some descriptions in holy texts, probably a lot longer too. And if you put stock in even just a few of the many rumors of crashed saucers, summoned technologies, and secret pacts with non-human entities, the advancements hidden away in the labs of connected corporations and deep state basements could be exponential. Flying machines, free energy generators, teleportation, time travel, portals to other worlds, frequency suppression of the people's pineals, AI supercomputers, mass mind control, consciousness transfer, cloning centers, hybriding programs, and animal-human chimeras. Well, these are just some of the possibilities when you consider the decades they've had to tinker away beyond the prying eyes of the general public with some even having been spoken about by whistleblowers of varying credibility, CIA declassified document dumps, and bizarre patents that have occasionally made their way onto the internet. They say we don't know what we don't know, but today's guest, Dave Zed, just might. He's the Canadian host of the Generation Zed podcast and YouTube channel, and he's dedicated himself to the stranger side of things, secret projects, suppressed patents, and a cornucopia of conspiracy goodness. His episodes are always interesting, and I'm psyched to dive in headfirst with the man himself. So let's do it. The dedicated dot connector, secret science exposer, and suppressed patent-seeking Seth Rogen of Conspiracy Podcasting. Dave, my man, welcome to the higher side. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate that. That was a fantastic way to describe it. <laughs> I try, man, and I am so happy to have you here. You are into the deepest of the deep, usually focused on the activities of these alleged highly classified projects that we usually only get whispers of, 
And I always enjoy seeing a new video from you. I'm sure this is going to be a lot of fun. Not only is your YouTube channel super impressive with the topics you get into, but it looks like it's not even a full year old. So, I mean, that's even more impressive. And the thing I've been dying to ask you right off the top is where do you get this stuff? You go into a lot of details that in many cases I've never heard before, and it seems like hard information to access. Can you get us started with a bit about your research methodology and the process for putting some of this stuff together? Sure. So first off, thank you. Fantastic way of asking it as well. So first off, I just want to say very quickly, the reason why I started the show was because I really couldn't find a place other than your channel and a handful of others that really put everything together in terms of giving a voice to people that really do not always necessarily believe but subscribe to the possibility of these concepts and these documents and this evidence as well. My research methodology is that in which I will say right now, you will very likely, and I say you as in general, will not find on Google. <laughs> it has to do with a handful of very careful and meticulous access to certain things that I guess we could call the gray area of the internet world, so to speak, without me saying it explicitly or directly. But the real key that I do with my research is looking for the small connections. And the reason I do that is because I don't necessarily believe there's going to be one big disclosure, whether it's aliens, anything spiritual or paranormal, you name it. And so what I realized from then on was I said, okay, when I'm doing my research, what I have to do here is I have to make the minute connections that will slowly add up to something much larger. Because if we're waiting for the day where, you know, the UFO or an alien landed ship in the middle of New York City or what have you, we're going to be waiting for a very long time, in my humble opinion. I hope I'm wrong. But in the meantime, that's the way I approach my research. Yes, I think that's a great summary, and I'm right there with you. We are not going to get very far waiting to have these things told to us. They're secrets for a reason, and so you kind of have to extrapolate from the small pieces we sometimes get. And I like that even when something sounds super wild, you say something to the effect of, I know this sounds crazy, but here is what we know. And here is the best case we can make for, you know, this claim or that project. And I think that is the best way to go about it. I appreciate that so much. And I also would like to make clear, thanks to the way that you also, what you just said, is that I always make it very clear and concise that on the show, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Evidence means that there's probable cause that could lead us in a certain direction right? Proof is like, no, 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 I have it right here. So the way I see proof, I define proof as is, for example, if I actually had in my studio here, a piece of, say, a UFO metal or aluminum or something like this, evidence, rather, is probable cause issues and occurrences that could likely lead to a certain outcome. But again, I appreciate you pointing out the fact that I play devil's advocate. I always tell people, you know, if it seems like I'm going down a rabbit hole, just bear with me. But I also tell people in some episodes when I am going down a rabbit hole, just so I'm not leading anybody on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, man. And with stories this epic, it's very hard to prove. And yep. it's because this is the stuff that's buried the deepest. So one of the things we've talked about on this show a lot is the patent system being a way to keep tabs on what people are working on. And if someone files a patent that tiptoes into 
ether physics or these secret sciences, obviously they get a visit. Most of these projects are deep corporate outside the scope of FOIA requests as well. Right. And there are other techniques to keep the suppression going. You talk about Brett Weinstein and his disc theory in a couple of your videos, and it's just another layer of gatekeeping that I think people should be aware of so that you know, we can make the case that some of this epic stuff is actually going on. And I played a clip from Brett on Bill Maher talking about gain-of-function research in the last episode, just for the listener's context, but I am a big fan of this guy. Tell the people a little bit about Brett and this disc theory that he's been talking about. What's the deal here? Sure. So actually, Brett also has a brother, Eric, as well. Both of them, it collectively, it seems, contributed to the DISC theory. And the DISC theory stands for Distributed Idea Suppression Complex. And I think it's a fantastic way to look at certain instances. And I say that because, like you said, the way in which they maneuver, and when I say they, I'm talking about those within the intelligence community, the private contractors, the military-industrial complex, that correspondence, that sort of trifecta, if you will, the way they maneuver around having things leak. I mean, things do leak, honestly, and sometimes it could be argued that, you know, they leak it on purpose. But most of the time, they get around it by, like you said, privatizing, setting up front companies and things like this. Now, the disc theory, I find extremely intriguing, because I think it describes something that we as a society collectively that question things in general have been trying to put our finger on for a long time, which is that there's not this one big committee this big shadow committee that approves or disproves certain things. What there is, is there's a loose organized group of people within the higher levels of certain institutions, particularly within academia, that don't necessarily know about these secret projects, but they are told from their superiors, which ultimately comes from the intelligence community and others, the trifecta that I just mentioned, they're told, basically, listen, if you are ever hypothetically approached say you're the head of a university. If you're ever approached with, you know, so-and-so idea, don't even look into it, just shut it down. And so they're told this. And what happens then is that most of the time, these ideas never come to fruition on the public end, so they don't have to deal with it. But the odd time when, say, a student or a professor approaches the head of a university and says, listen, you know, ma'am or sir, I would like to publish this study a theory I have on potential zero-point energy or anti-gravity, what the head of the university then does, they don't say well, you cannot publish this, but they'll do everything in their power to implicitly and indirectly imply. For example, are you sure you want to do this? I don't think you should publish this. It might not be good for your career. You're going to embarrass you. Actually, no, no, no. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's the way in which it seems the disc theory tends to, I guess we could say, generate itself, so to speak. Now, there might be other angles to it, but it seems like so far that's what we're seeing. And we see that not just within the academic community. We see that happening at outlets like the New York Times. Not to change the subject, but a quick example, Barry Weiss, she said the same thing. Right before she left the Times, she said the same idea as the disc theory, because she knows the Weinsteins, were happening, which was that she was about to publish a story, and she was told by her superior, the editor-in-chief, are you sure you want to publish that story? I don't think you should. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And so we see the reoccurrence there, and this is why it's not just within the academic community. The reason why the disc theory is so focused or so prominent in the academic community is because that's where ideas come to light.
right? That's where evolution is done and things are made. And the reason why I think the disc theory is so prominent is because I would dare to argue in many regards, not being a scientist, mind you, I would dare to argue, however, that a lot of these technologies or the way of manipulating or bending space-time is not as difficult as we may think. Therefore, the knowledge is truly the new currency. I give the example of someone, for example, who is a just a basic physicist or scientist with the right materials, they can make, for example, a nuclear bomb in their kitchen, right? And imagine if they were able to be given access to the knowledge of how to, say, curate zero-point energy in their kitchen. And if people could start doing that, then what happens to the form of control that the government has on society? You start to say, wait a minute, I can produce anti-gravity, which technically means with the right materials, I can leave this planet and, you know, do many different things. But then I have to, you know, pay these bills for this water, for this, you know, money that's preconceived to be that of a perception. Right. And so I think that's the reason why the disc theory is so prominent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really intrigued by that distributed idea suppression complex. And this isn't our speculation. This is an academic telling you how academia is structured. Right. So, you know, take it from the horse's mouth. And let's dive right in with portal technology. Sure. It's probably the most epic of these secret project speculations. You talk about artificially created portals and more natural portals that seem to just open up on occasion on their own at certain times, or maybe with just a little nudge. And maybe this is even why they needed to get into Iraq in the early 2000s. But what do we know about these portal projects, how they're opened, and how they're being used? Right. So first, I would just like to make a couple of distinctions between black projects or black budget projects and dark projects. Now, black budget projects are essentially not necessarily off the books because they do admit that a large percentage, let's just say if we're talking about the states right now, a large percentage of the taxpayers' dollars go to classified operations. And they show, you know, we spend $600 billion to a $1 trillion a year roughly on the military, on every aspect, and they admit that. And so the difference here is that a dark project, you're going to find little to no documents. The way in which you discover these things are through consistencies and patterns of whistleblowers, certain events that have occurred based on other intelligence documents of overseas intelligence agencies. And that's the way that we discover the dark projects. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because looking for stargates or portals, for one instance, in Iraq, for example, I would dare to argue would be that of a dark project simply because having any document would ultimately create a paper trail, so to speak. Now, the reason why I say there are phantom gates and then there are stargates is because stargates tend to be that in which are artificially curated and created which is not necessarily a bad thing, but what it's doing there is that it is essentially manipulating the fabric of this current dimension, which is totally fine because you're not breaking it. I would dare to argue it's very difficult to break it, if not impossible. That's why it's all about bending, just like the UFO crafts are. But phantom gates are more anomalistic in the sense that they're random surges of energy that I guess we could argue would be that in which if we were to say that the world we live in is arguably a simulation, it would be similar to that of a glitch in a computer, right? Where you did nothing wrong with your computer. You turned it on, you're browsing the web or you're doing your thing, whatever you're doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, your computer just randomly shuts down or there's a glitch or something like this. 
Now, it's also been argued that there was a Stargate in Iraq, which was, aside from the oil, the real reason as to why the United States and many other countries jumped on board right away. And the reason why I say this is because when the weapons of mass destruction instance occurred, like that whole narrative, and it turned out that this was not the case, as we all now know, doesn't matter politically where you lean, we all know that that was BS. What we're finding there is that the same countries that privately opposed the U.S. going into Iraq because they said there was no evidence that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction are the same countries that immediately the second the U.S. invaded, they called up the U.S. and said, yes, we're with you. Now, granted, the U.S. is the powerhouse of the world. I understand that. With that being said, though, I find it interesting that so many countries stayed with the United States in Iraq for so long almost as if they were looking for something. And I have personal testimony of many soldiers saying they were placed to guard certain things, to be placed in certain parts of Iraq that just did not make any sense, right? And so when we look at that, clearly, whether or not Saddam Hussein knew himself, clearly there was some type of Stargate or Phantom Gate that was there. And when we look at that, we have no choice but to say this is a very likely proposition based on the other evidence we've seen of instances of time travel or teleportation. And again, it could be totally wrong, but the evidence suggests otherwise, right? There is probable cause to suggest that that was the case. Hmm. Wow, man. And when they create a gate or they open one through technological means or means that aren't just some natural portal place opening up. How do they do it, typically? Generally speaking, I don't know the specific details. Based on all of the data and the research and the patents that I've been studying, it seems like it is harnessing some type of energy that I guess we could consider scientific when it comes to a synthetic Stargate, very similar to that in which we can argue about synthetic Merkabas for those that are into spirituality and things like this. It's kind of like, for example having a human being born very naturally, obviously with a man and a woman, or synthetically within a lab. In theory, there is no difference. But in reality, the way that the fabric of the universe responds to it is different. And so how they do it seems to be that in which is fueled by a few different things. I'm not sure how much I could speak of it publicly just because of the censoring. It starts with an A. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, <laughs> oh, the substance, adrenochrome? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, we just go for it around here. I mean, oh, what, yeah. Whatever happens, happens. <laughs> I didn't want to disrespect you on the show. I didn't know if you guys had any... Uh... All good, all good. I appreciate it. Okay, cool. So it seems like adrenochrome plays a big part. And the reason for that is because there's constant cases and reports of adrenochrome extraction. And this is when, you know, we really get down the rabbit hole here. It seems like adrenochrome powers more than just stargates but if we stick to the stargate topic what we're going to find is that it's a combination particularly with the artificial stargates of curating energy from around different aspects of the planet in a geographical sense sucking up the energy all around it and curating it into one spot and focusing that energy now as to the specifics in which they create the stargate i'm not sure if they need a specific type of aluminum a specific type of material for the border of the stargate itself but clearly they've experimented with some things and there is evidence to suggest that yes yes even just ether physics or this electric energy that people talk about being in all of the space between things. And this seems like it's something that could be harnessed and seems like there are dimensions just 
a click away from our own with uh, a robust pantheon of different creatures in them. Right. I think that that's uh, something that they've been able to access through uh, some of this technology. Oh, absolutely. What they've done is they've harnessed it. And when I say they, I would dare to say that it is humans. But again, without the knowledge given to them by certain extraterrestrial species, I give this example on my show all the time. It would be like dropping a motorcycle from today's day and age back into the 1500s. The people of the 1500s, honestly, over time, they'd probably figure out how to ride it, but they wouldn't figure out how specifically it worked. They wouldn't realize, okay, you know, you got to put gas and you got to, you know, the oil and this and that, and these are the brakes and this is how the brakes work for two reasons, the material and the knowledge. They just didn't have it at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. And to give people an idea of your epic titles for these episodes, I wanted to ask you about this one. It's called Special Order 937, the wormhole generator that transports mutilated ET hybrids for experiments. Hell of a setup. But what can you tell us about Special Order 937? What's going on with these experiments you mentioned here? Okay, so Special Order 937 is quite unique, and the reason for that is because within the deep underground military bases, there are multiple levels. And for those who don't know, deep underground military bases, as I'm sure your audience probably does know, is called DUMS for short, right? And we we know, you know, very basically at the fundamental level, there's tons of them all over, not just North America, but the world, really. And the reason for these special orders are that special orders are orders in which are given from the very lowest level of these dumb bases, whether it's underwater in the Atlantic, whether it's terrain or Antarctica, you name it. And the reason for that is because any type of paper trail that would lead back to anything, it's not even about having a PSYOP or any type of predictive programming or disinformation campaign. They don't want to be acknowledged or exist whatsoever. Now, the question then becomes, when you go to the bottom of these dumb bases, do you ever come back up? On the human side, my research has indicated, not proven, but indicated that it's kind of like when people work a job where they go on oil rigs, they go away for two, three months, and then they come home for like a month and repeat. Whereas the extraterrestrials within these lower bases have no problem living and staying there permanently. Now, we're talking about massive complexes underground, so it's not like they're stuck in a room forever. But it seems as though the reason why these orders are given are to give an update to those within the intelligence community. And then it's literally, I guess we could say, read and destroy, if you will. And when we see Special Order 937, Phil Schneider in one of his speeches had referenced this. That's why I have so much confidence to discuss it. And 937, interestingly enough, was not actually the number that it was. It was actually 934. But the reason why they labeled it 937 after Schneider leaked it out was because Special Order 937 if I'm not mistaken, just off of my memory, because I don't have my notes in front of me, was actually from, I think it was a film in Star Trek, if I'm not an episode in the old Star Trek episodes. And that's a form of psychological warfare, flipping it so that whenever you Google it, you're going to find the fiction side of it rather than what really happened. Right. And then if you do come across the actual document, what you're then going to say is, no, this is BS. I just saw that in a show, man. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? And so that's the way in which they sow doubt. But very rarely do these orders ever come up from the very bottom level. And at the very bottom level, we're talking 
time travel, we're talking teleportation, and we're talking extremely, again, we can argue about what's ethical or not, but we're talking about extremely unethical experimentation, human-alien hybrids, different types of animal mixtures. I mean, to say that on a public level, for example, we haven't delved into things like mRNA, which has been available to us since the 80s, but not harnessed up until now, is, in my humble opinion, preposterous. I mean, to say that at some secret level, there isn't a, even a small group of people working on this many, many years ago, I would say that it's almost a 0% chance that no one isn't working on it. <laughs> I agree. And one of the things you say in that video I thought was interesting is that the Chupacabra could very well just be a human-alien hybrid from a failed project that got out and is now considered to be some kind of cryptid thing. But yeah, you would think if they're working on chimeras and hybrids, some of the things people talk about in the cryptid world would have to be the result of some of these experimentations. It just seems to make sense. And you also say that basically, essentially, one of these programs that is going on in the alien base underground is that they are keeping souls in capsules and feeding off that energy. That's pretty interesting. It seems like so much of the alien program revolves around the human soul or consciousness, if you want to use that term. Yeah. So if I could just say before jumping into that, I'm more than happy to talk about that. I just wanted to mention one quick addition to the Chupacabra point that you mentioned, which is a great point, which is that if any of these beings or these mutated experiments were to escape these labs or these underground bases, which is highly unlikely, but still possible nonetheless, what we're going to find is only a handful of sightings around the world, hence the handful of sightings, right? The handful of captures, things like this, things that, you know, scientists have openly admitted, we can't explain it. However, there have only been a handful, and that actually adds to the cover-up aspect of it because it then becomes, well, you know, you start to think in your mind, Ah, there's only been four or five possibly legitimate sightings, so why should I believe in this? And that's just the psychological warfare aspect of it. When it comes to the human soul and the human soul playing a big part, I really appreciate you asking that because in the 1954 Griotta Treaty, which Eisenhower allegedly signed with some Ebens from the planet Eben, or planet Serpo, my apologies, and a handful of other extraterrestrials, what was discussed there was that, again, we don't know if these beings were deceitful or not. But the point is this, they had said they wanted to help humans in their advancement spiritually. And humans, as well as President Eisenhower, pretty much said, just give us the tech. You know what I mean? And so that's very human of us to do, and I could see that happening. But the reason why I'm so confident with regards to the soul aspect of it is that there was a woman by the name of Carla Turner, a handful of other journalists as well, but she was the most significant one. She experienced very sadly back in the 90s or early 2000s an extremely quick onset of breast cancer where her and her family genetically had no history of it. But then this cancer occurred a handful of weeks after she made a speech that she was warned from an anonymous phone caller to not do which was that the speech had to do with someone who was abducted by a tall gray alien and a handful of others that because there's different types of grays, there's short ones, tall, you name it, right? And what happened was this person was not supposed to be awake because again, nothing in life is perfect. Accidents happen. Maybe they were able to resist or that telepathically they were not quote unquote put asleep well enough. And they had witnessed souls being extracted through the gland of the eyes 
again, adrenochrome, it seems to be, or some form of it. And the soul literally being what you would see, I think, in Game of Thrones. If anyone who watches that has seen the woman in red with when she has that spirit, that evil spirit possessed people, it seems to be described in the same way, except not as enthusiastic, let's say, in terms of trying to possess people. It just goes wherever it falls into, so to speak, like an object. And so the soul is then placed in a glass box and there's tons of them. And it seems as though the reason for this is because these gray aliens, some of them do not have the souls in which humans, Nordic aliens and other extraterrestrial species have, which is that divine connection with the cosmos and the universe. And that's a bit more of the spiritual aspect. But the point here is that it seems as though our soul in a lot of regards seems to be extremely valuable. And it seems like adrenochrome is only the beginning. It's one doorway of many into multiple other doorways in this case. Now, Carla Turner had this happen to her. And it was very, very interesting because, again, this is the same three to five year period that Phil Schneider also told his friend as well. Listen, you know, adrenochrome is actually in his speeches. Adrenochrome is real. He told his friend, if I end up, quote unquote, committing suicide, then you'll know that I was actually murdered. Or he also said to his friend, which a lot of people don't know. I believe he said, if I end up getting some type of cancer or something like this, you'll know that I was murdered. And so if we follow that consistency and the pattern, it's very possible this was not the case, but I'd put it at like 70% chance that it did and then 30% chance that it didn't. 70% being that Carla Turner did have a very interesting case of cancer, if you will. And the last point I want to make on that is for those who doubt that, you know, because people might say, well, Dave, People get cancer all the time. You're absolutely right. But let's take a look back very quickly into the 1970s with the Church and Warren Commission, where they showed in a public hearing, which again, the media, I mean, nowadays they don't like to really show on Google or anything, but they still do, where they talked about how there was a gun that could give someone a heart attack. The CIA had a fully developed, not even a prototype, a full on weapon where you just shot nothing. In some cases, it was a dart, but later on, it then evolved into shooting nothing. And then it's sort of like an airsoft gun and someone would just die of a heart attack, very naturally looking. And that's it. And so my argument to that is this. My rebuttal is this. It's fine if you don't believe in that, in how Carla Turner got cancer. But we're seeing here a full admittance in the Church and Warren Commission in the 70s that they could just shoot from a long distance away at somebody and they just have a heart attack as if it was natural. And that was in the 70s. Keep in mind, this weapon was developed in the late 60s. And so what I would then rebut with is, so you're telling me they don't have a weapon in the late 90s, early 2000s that could give someone cancer very quickly? And I could be wrong, but that's all I have to say. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems within the realm of possibility. Let's get into multidimensional elements too. So we know Bob Lazar talked about element 113 and we hear about these stories of strange metals circulating around the Invisible College. I was actually shown an image privately by a previous guest that really blew my mind, just strange metal. But this idea of opening portals sounds pretty epic and far-fetched, but when you're really folding in all the real possibilities of working with elements and materials that were given to these groups by other beings or sucked out of other dimensions, who knows the limits of what they can do or access with materials that they wouldn't be able to get on their own or didn't come from here. What's the deal with these elements and some of these otherworldly materials that you've covered? Well, first off, thank you so much for bringing that up. And that's actually really cool that someone showed you a medal like that. What I find to be extremely interesting is the consistency in which these whistleblowers tend to describe 
certain metals. Now, I do want to make it clear as well that for those that think that this is very far-fetched, one thing I want to say to kind of ground it, if you will, is that when you develop anti-gravity, if you can develop anti-gravity, what happens there essentially is that that's only the beginning. But the beautiful thing about anti-gravity is not just that you're creating some type of force field or a bubble around whatever you want it to be around your craft or yourself or whatever, where you are literally void in the fabric of space and time. What anti-gravity then does is through these elements and metals is that anti-gravity then allows for things like force fields, invisibility cloaks, different forms of teleportation to actually be harnessed. So everything that we thought to be science fiction then becomes reality if we have just anti-gravity. Now, the metals and the elements are a totally different ballgame because if we have metals or elements that are, say, from different, I'm not even going to say dimensions. Let's just put that aside for a sec. Let's just say different planets, for example, that are not accessible here. What happens when you emit a certain frequency to these metals? Do they respond in a certain way? Do they respond naturally? Is there a way that maybe they don't respond, but we can synthetically curate it? And one interesting thing too, is it okay for me to mention company names on here or? Absolutely. Okay. So one interesting thing for me as well is that I found when uh, Jacques Vallée went on the Joe Rogan podcast, I think it was sometime around six months ago, give or take. Don't quote me on that. What What happened there was he discussed, very similar to your guest that you had just mentioned, about how certain metals go missing very mysteriously around universities and things like that. Now, again, ironically enough, that technically ties into the disc theory, right? Metals quietly disappearing. And what's interesting here, though, is that when we look at all of that, what we'll find is that a lot of that is correlated with a corporation called Battelle Corporation. And of course, there's Battelle and there's, you know, EG&G and all that. But what we're finding here is that a lot of these institutes that study physics and nuclear capabilities and, and all that, if you check out their website or you check out what they do, they tell you a whole lot of stuff without telling you much, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so... It seems like what they're doing here with these metals is that they're curating them in a way that allows for them to be placed within certain craft to give it certain abilities. And I'll give you a quick example. One of Phil Schneider's speeches before he quote unquote committed suicide was that he had a titanium alloy with him that he claimed to have been the same material recovered from the Roswell crash. And he said that this particular metal is an alien metal that doesn't do anything naturally, but if curated at the right frequency, creates invisibility, anti-gravity, and all that. He said that this metal is actually very covertly placed in a lot of the most advanced black budget jets. Even the jets that pilots fly where they don't even, they aren't even aware of any of these projects to begin with. And the reason for that is because Phil Schneider, he didn't say it implicitly, but he implied that if there were to be ever some major occurrence where I don't know, some type of massive hypothetical, I guess we could say disarmament or let's just say all of, you know, another country or an adversary tries to energetically or some other way militaristically damage a lot of our fighter jets and things like this and our helicopters and planes. These metals will activate. Now, how they get activated is beyond me right now, but they do get activated. And then what happens there is that it creates a force field around all of these fighter jets and helicopters. So the United States could then reserve their militaristic capabilities. Yes, man, that's uh, super interesting. I'm sure there's all sorts of properties to strange elements and, and metals that we just aren't privy to. And 
In some videos, you allude to high technology in the ancient past, and we wonder how some of this stuff would have been possible back then, but maybe some of this material was given to them, or maybe they stumbled into it with some strange means that we aren't aware of anymore. Right. And this is the thing. And again, honestly, what you're bringing up here is I really appreciate this because it's honestly what I wanted to talk about coming on here, which is that I always talk about on the show the constant need for evaluating the perception of certain words. Because when we say technology nowadays, the first thing you think of is probably a computer or a smartphone or something like this, right? Technology has a much broader meaning to it, which is that Technology overall, in general, could be something that could be harnessed naturally in combination with artificial instances or, I guess we could say, metamaterials, if you will, which we, in theory would be nanotechnology and things like this. And so when we look at that, it's not really that hard to envision, again, respectfully, unless you're extremely close-minded, it's not that difficult to envision an instance where certain metals, elements, rocks, you name it, could be manipulated using certain frequencies within ancient civilizations. And it's no coincidence as well, at least I would dare to argue in many regards, that if we look at the Mexican pyramids from an aerial point of view, from a bird's eye view, I believe this was brought up, I mean, it's brought up all the time, but, and I think you can find it online. What we see is that when we look at it directly above, not the Egyptian pyramids, the Mexican pyramids, we'll find that the pyramids and the structures around it and the structures that connect to it represent that of a CPU that we use in computers today to a T. So it could be argued that many of these stones, metals, were harnessing something called piezoelectricity, where when in a certain way, when there's enough friction created within the electromagnetic sphere, when you could push together enough stones or metals, what then happens is you create something not necessarily artificial, but you're harnessing mother nature, if you want to call it that. And in many regards, that is a way of technology, right? Because what is technology? We're using materials that are available to us to harness things and curate things in a way that favors us, right? Yeah, and, and some of this entity contact that's talked about is through occult means rather than anything involving modern machinery or digital means. Right. With that context, it's like, who knows how far back some sort of conversation could have been happening. And maybe they were given technology in the ancient past, told things about the cosmos and the structures of reality. I mean, who knows how many different little things could have jumped the timeline or entered into a, an era where they had really no place being kind of like that term out of place artifacts. They say like, these are the things, the anomalous things that it's like, how did this get here? Well, maybe there is contact that happens cross dimensionally and beyond time itself. Right. And the other thing I, I wanted to point out as well to add to what you just said there is that regardless of space, time, and all that, one thing is for certain, and this has been studied many times, all you got to do is take a basic EMF reader and go to a place where there's large groups of people that are praying. It doesn't matter which religion. What you're going to find is that there's going to be extremely anomalistic spikes and bursts in the electromagnetic spectrum where these people are praying. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because when we correlate that back to the occult, I will tell you one thing. I am by no means an expert on the occult. I don't claim to be. I have friends who understand it and know much more than I do. But one pattern I've noticed throughout my research is that sometimes it is the symbols, 
but not always. And I say this very carefully because it seems as though it's not necessarily the symbols like, you know, the pentagram and things like this. It's more so the energy that has been directed towards those symbols for many, many thousands of years, which has given that particular symbol a cosmic value, if you want to call it that. Sort of like when you mark something down on a piece of paper, unless you, you know, if you use a marker, it's not going to go away. Same idea here. If you press hard enough into instilling a certain type of frequential pattern into a symbol, it then sets itself into the universe. Right. And I think that what we see there is what's occurring. Now, I'm not trying to discredit any occult symbolism. I know that there's a lot of misconceptions about the occult. I know that there's a lot of people that are very upset about that because, you know, the Vatican has kind of really pressed hard against that and many other institutions have as well. I think there's a lot that could be learned. I think the occult is not necessarily a good thing nor a bad thing. I think it truly comes down to how you approach it. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Having to do with the type of energy that you put towards whatever you're trying to curate. I mean, if someone is doing a seance where they're trying to summon a negative entity, for example, from another realm spiritually, as long as they know they're summoning a negative entity, it doesn't make any difference to me, right? I think the issue lies is when people think they're going to summon a positive entity and they don't, mainly because in a lot of ways they may not know what they're doing or there might have been something on the spiritual end that caused this type of ripple. But again, I'm not an expert. This is just what my research has found. <laughs> right. Don't shoot the messenger, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and another one of my favorites of yours is called Project Ghost, Harvesting Ancient Bloodlines to Access Archon Ghost Particle DNA. Now, one of the things I liked best was this little thread about horseshoe crab blood. I think if you've dug around a bit in dark corners of the internet, you see these images of like an assembly line of horseshoe crabs hooked up to machinery and vials of their blue blood being harvested. What is this about? What is so special about this blood? So it's interesting that you ask that because crab blood is very, very unique in the sense that it could be used for many different things medically, biologically, and arguably spiritually. It has been argued, but it's not for certain. It has been argued that crab blood was one of the many liquids, for example, that Hitler had put into his top secret project, the Die Glock project, which many you know as the Nazi bell, their version of trying to allegedly create some type of UFO apparatus that could not only do what we see UFOs do now in terms of bending space and time in theory, but also teleporting from one dimension to another. Honestly, I wish, Greg, I could tell you what it was. I don't know what's in the blood that makes this occur, but I've seen enough evidence and enough data to more than explicitly suggest that this is being harvested in ways that are totally off the books off the record. I don't know about dark operations because I don't want to say something that I don't have any evidence on, but definitely within black budget operations. We see that it's also being used on the public end for medicine. And I bring that up because what's interesting is that when we take a look at a lot of the medicine that's coming out or has come out, it is arguably a form of something called drop feeding. Drop feeding is that very slowly but surely reverse engineered technology that is hidden from the public is brought out into the public in very small forms. So they would probably disclose, you know, one or two percent of something they've reverse engineered from a UFO craft and implement it so that they can make our smartphones better, for example. 
A quick example of that would be General Philip Corso, one of the top soldiers who recovered a lot of the Roswell material before he died. And this was long before anyone had used these terms so commonly. He said, don't kid yourself, things such as fiber optic lasers, things such as Kevlar, which at the time Kevlar publicly didn't exist. He said all of this has been reverse engineered from the material picked up at Roswell. And he goes, how do I know? Well, I was there. And if we take that same methodology and we apply it to what we're seeing with crab blood, we're going to see very, very carefully and very meticulously crab blood is being used on the public end of things. Now, I'm not trying to imply that that's a bad thing per se. Maybe it actually is a good thing, but it seems as though crab blood is used for some biological experimentation of sorts. It could be related to that of adrenochrome. It seems like a lot of underseas, particularly deep, deep within the ocean type of creatures and amphibious animals tend to have something within their blood that could be used for many different reasons. Yes, it's certainly unique stuff. And I, I copied this down to try to throw another log on the horseshoe crab blood fire because these images are easy to find for people who just Google it. But so are mainstream articles as to why they do this. Here's part of an article from naturalhistorymuseum.uk. It reads, Horseshoe crab blood, the miracle vaccine ingredient that saved millions of lives. Horseshoe crabs are older than the dinosaurs. They've been around for 450 million years, which means they watched the rise and fall of millions of other species and have survived ice ages. As well as being incredible living fossils, they have also helped to keep most of us alive. If you've ever had a vaccine, chances are it was tested for safety using horseshoe crab blood. And they're about to save even more lives because they're playing their part in the creation of the COVID-19 injection. In many parts of the world, researchers are relying on horseshoe crab blood in these important tests. And since we'll want to vaccinate millions of people in a short period of time, horseshoe crabs will play a big part. And... That's just odd. I mean, it's been a year of COVID coverage. I didn't hear anything on TV about horseshoe crab blood being the linchpin that's going to get us to where they want us to be. But it's just odd. They're definitely finding some strange qualities to this very ancient blood of the horseshoe crab. You say this horseshoe crab blue blood has archon DNA within it in that video. And this blood lets the elite transcend their souls. and this is something that I, I get into a lot too. Like if there is a cycle to souls, then there's probably alterations or as you say, you can maybe bend the rules a little bit as to what happens. But just like you mentioned, the potency of attention put on certain symbols like a pentagram, time does seem to well up energy. And maybe this ancient living fossil horseshoe crab blood has some very unique energy to it. Right. And I really respect and appreciate the way that you phrased all of that specifically because, again, like going back to, for example, COVID, and I'm not trying to get into that. All I'm saying is that it's kind of out there, again, a form of the disc theory. It's kind of out there. It's like, listen, you know, if you want to search it up, it's there. But let's be honest, no one knows what to search. I mean, generally speaking, nobody knows really what to look for unless they have some type of guiding hand, right? And the mainstream media sadly seems to still be that type of guiding hand. Not as much anymore. But the point here, though, is that why all of a sudden it's like, oh, horseshoe crab blood, it helps COVID. 
or I mean, it helps create a vaccine for to develop a vaccine. Why all of a sudden horseshoe crab blood? And again, this ties in with the disc theory. This is something, this is knowledge, if you will, that's been used and curated. And I would even dare to say artificially experimented on for many, many years, very similar to that of mRNA. Since the 1980s, it was publicly disclosed. But the whole thing is, well, there's been no public studies funded for them. So, you know, we've never tried it. In my head, the first thing that I say is, if there's no public studies, there are no public studies for a reason. It's either A, it's being experimented in a classified level, or B, it's being experimented at a classified level, but there's nothing that came of it. So they didn't bother to create more, I guess we could say, excitement about it on the front end because they already know on the on the secretive end what it's going to lead to right and so either way it's best to not make this happen now on a public level what's interesting that i find is that it's almost as if like people will then say to me and i totally respect this they'll say dave well how could you say that there are some very fine scientists that worked on the vaccine to develop it and things like this and you know there's a debate as to the thing with covid but let's just say in any hypothetical scenario let's just say that a vaccine was developed the first thing that i would then say is I have the utmost respect on the public level for the doctors that are working on it because I don't blame them. What they don't realize, and I'm not saying this is the case, I'm saying this is possibly the case, that in this case, horseshoe crab blood, through the disc theory, was trickled down in a certain way, or I guess upwards, no pun intended if it's coming from dumbs, it trickled down in a way that essentially allowed for this type of coincidence to happen where it's like, listen, oh my gosh, we found the cure, right? And I'm not saying COVID, I'm just saying in general, right? And so what we see here is that it's almost as if convenience happens for public society only when it's appropriate, right? A virus has taken over the world. All of a sudden we need a cure, boom, within less than a year, we're good. And then at that point, all you got to worry about is mass producing it, right? And there's a lot of things about that. And that's not even the point I'm trying to make. But what we see there is that we see technology and, you know, chemicals and elements that publicly were, you know, found in the 50s, the 40s, maybe even earlier. And let's just say mRNA found in the 80s, discovered in the 80s, rather. And then all of a sudden, there's no testing for it. Oh, okay. So like, you're telling me that, you know, those guys, all those hundreds of billions of dollars in the States that Americans pay taxes to just went to what? Developing more helicopters and fighter jets? How many do you need worth, what, $600 billion? Now, I get it. You, gotta, you have to pay the soldiers. It's not that simple. But my overarching concept is that the convenience in which these things occur is a little bit funny, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. And to talk a little bit more about this Project Ghost Harvesting Ancient Bloodlines video of yours, when you mention... The elite using this blood or trying to cultivate it or, uh, you know, build up a higher concentration of it. You mentioned their goal is to transcend their souls or break free from the chains the archons imposed on us. And I really like that because I definitely think that's one of the highest aims of the elite is to break through this reality in some sense. And before there was modern technology and quantum computing, which is what I think they're using now, mainly things like CERN and every tool in the toolbox with modern science. Right. In the old days, it was mostly occult means and about blood. And we know they carefully manage their bloodline. And if it is to build up higher concentrations of this archon DNA or this particular blood that seems to have other qualities, 
I could see it having something to do with uh, their ability to push and pull on reality's barriers a little bit. Is there anything more you can say about the elite's cultivation of this DNA or blood and at least their plans or attempts to kind of break free from reality's constraints? Right. So I think what we're seeing here is that, and again, I have no proof of this. I have evidence to suggest this with the data. But what we're seeing here is a very likely possibility of when we pass away as human beings, our souls being, I guess we could use the word recycled into another body, if you will, assuming we are not spiritually ready to transcend. Now, when we say the elites, I'd like to just define that term very quickly, because sometimes it's used very vaguely. I would say to people when they ask me, Dave, who are the elites? Which ones? I would say think of them as sort of like mob families, if you will, right? Organized crime groups or gangs. There are many different kinds with different agendas, but overall the goal is the same. Kind of like with mobsters, the end game is to make money. With the elites, the end game is control and ascension, whether that's through negative means or positive means, right? And so I just wanted to make that clear, but the proposal... And the theory that souls are being recycled mainly because when you have people such as psychics or mediums or, you know, tarot card readers that can read into a past life of someone, what we're finding there through something called the Akashic Records is that it seems as though this Akashic Record, if you will, or these records, they have many different names over many thousands, if not millions of years, but it seems like there is a I don't know if we can define it as a physical place within this three-dimensional realm, but there is a place in the universe, within the cosmos, maybe frequentially, that could be accessed, that stores all of the knowledge that has occurred within a given location, within a given human body, at a particular point, within a specific soul, at a particular time. And what I find interesting is that when we look at all of this, it's almost as if the elites are trying to ensure their soul is not recycled. And the reason for that is because if your soul becomes recycled, you then forget who you were previously. And that's the whole thing. To keep memory is the key. And switching bodies doesn't matter to them. Because if you can transfer the soul to another physical body, then you pretty much, you got the game on lock, so to speak. But if you can transfer a soul to a physical body, but that soul forgets who it was previously, what's the point? It's no different than you dying and then coming back assuming that this is the case. Now, the reason why I say the Archons is because allegedly they helped contribute a frequential apparatus many, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago into suppressing the human, I guess we could say consciousness, collective consciousness, if you will, because there have been reports of other extraterrestrial beings that have said to government officials, particularly intelligence officials, that there is an energetic grid not just around Earth, but around our star system that keeps our souls suppressed unless we are connected enough with what they refer to as the divine or the ultimate, I guess we could say, source of energy within the universe that would allow us to transcend that trap, so to speak. Hmm, that's interesting. And what do you think some of the things that would help us strengthen that connection would be? Is it something we need to do on an individual basis or is it more of an all or nothing thing humanity needs to do together? Maybe there's some sort of cosmic positioning required or it's part of the yuga cycle that only happens at certain times. What are your thoughts on the conditions and processes for bypassing that soul suppression, as you say? I'm not an expert, but based on just the process of my research, what I've found so far is that it seems as though it starts with 
a mental awakening. And what I mean by that is, for example, having the conversation we're having right now, not necessarily believing these proposals that go down rabbit holes, but being open to them. There's a difference, right? And so when we look at that, we have no choice but to then say to ourselves, you know what, I'm going to look into it more. Naturally, what happens then is this awakens a part of the human soul, if you will, within the subconscious that then naturally by the progression of the topic you're looking into leads to things like meditation, self-awareness, personal growth, you know, maybe not being as greedy for money, maybe being happy with the money that could pay your bills and then take care of your family, things like this, right? And it seems as though these are scientifically correlated with that of high frequency energy that is given off within certain points of the day from humans. Whereas if you're in a bad mood, you're literally giving off low frequency waves. And so I think the connection is there, but I think certain things to do in order to strengthen that connection with becoming more aware is to first off, question everything and then question nothing simultaneously, if that makes sense. Kind of subscribing to Walter Russell's The Universal One book that Nikola Tesla told him to hide away for a thousand years until humanity is ready because it's almost as if we see a resemblance here with the components that UFO crafts are made out of. We see a resemblance with the occult, the messages that are there, which is that everything is separate but the same simultaneously. And the perfection is actually the imperfection. And so I think one of the things to realize this and to ascend spiritually is not necessarily like, okay, every day at, you know, 4 p.m. I got to meditate. I think it's to more so be aware of these things, to have these conversations. And then as it sits in your mind, it's kind of like a very positive resonance that kind of rubs into your spirit. But first, it must go through the mind. At least that's the research and the data that I've found. Yeah, that's a great summary. Cheers to that. But geez, wild stuff. And I'm sure the listeners can now understand why I started with a question about your research methodology and sources, because a lot of this stuff seems very difficult to know. And for people who have been listening and find a lot of this stuff potentially hard to believe, definitely hard to know for sure. What would you say to them to strengthen the overall case that you've been making today, that they shouldn't just write off a lot of this stuff? Well, I appreciate you asking that. The one thing I would say to people is that don't go into something believing it, but don't also go into it not believing it. Go into it as neutrally as you ideologically and mentally can. Now, I would say, think about it like this, the way that an investigator looks for patterns of what there is, I think the same could also be applied for what there isn't. This is the same with the yin and the yang, hermetic principles, different religions that say the same thing, just in different forms or different ways or methods. I would say, look for what's not there and start from there. And I know that someone might then say, well, Dave, that's quite a vague statement to make. Well, not necessarily. If you're looking into evidence of stargates, the first thing you're going to look into is patents and things like this. What you want to do is you want to look for the things that are not publicly disclosed. Now, again, like I said at the very beginning of this episode with my research methodology, you might have to dive into some areas of the web that you may not necessarily be comfortable with. And that's the risk that you take, which is why I always say careful on the unregulated spots of the Internet because, you know, people can get a hold of your private information. So I do want to give that respectful warning because I don't want people just jumping all over the place and then they come back and go, Dave, you know, like my address is all over the internet. So I don't want that happening. But 
I think ultimately what we have to do is look for the things that are not so apparent. And then we reverse it back to the patents, the documents, the whistleblower testimony and things like this, because that's what brings it full circle. Whereas if we start with patents and documents and stuff like that, what then happens is you then create a world where you can just imagine anything you like. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to start with what we can find on, I guess we could say the gray fields of the internet and find the consistencies. And then if we can link it back to the public documents, patents and whistleblower statements and articles in some cases, news articles, then we make a connection. And that's what I encourage people to think about. That's how I formulate my episodes. I have to say very quickly, Greg, there's some times where I think I have a connection and, you know, I spend hours researching and I just, it doesn't happen. So I'm not going to make an episode on something that I can't provide evidence for, right? Well said. And when it comes to whistleblower testimony or even these patents and declassified documents, which ones specifically do you think are the most credible or the most revealing that maybe the more skeptical people should follow up on? If you only had one or two to try to catch them with, which ones would you throw out there? Oh, well, if I only had one choice, I would have no choice just because if someone said to me, Dave, you only got my attention for, you know, 10 minutes, you have one document or one piece to present to me and that's it. I presented them the carrot document, C-A-R-E-T. If you Google carrot, what you're going to find is that it's allegedly a legitimate document from the 80s, mid to late 80s, that multiple whistleblowers who don't apparently know each other have been consistent with in terms of the way in which they describe this technology and what they worked on. I would say the carrot files, C-A-R-E-T for those wanting to look into it. The next file I would present would probably be that of the, again, we have to go into this with the mindset of there's a bit of an intelligence disinformation program at play here, and we have to be vigilant of that. So I don't want to recommend a document that someone might say, you know, this is disinformation. I would say carrot, and then I would probably say, honestly, the WikiLeaks emails, if your audience hasn't already read through them. And I say that just because you know it's true when the government doesn't comment on it or when they basically say, you know, four or five years later, yeah, it's true, so what? I would say that would be another starting point. Right on. Because, right on. And, and, and sorry, if I could just say quickly, the, the WikiLeaks documents are a good starting point because they open the possibility of perceiving things in a more broader way. Because there's a lot of discussions there that people had initially, even people who don't delve into these rabbit holes that I touch, there's a lot of discussion there that a lot of people who don't even believe in aliens will see. Like, for example, John Podesta talking to Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who passed away now, the sixth man to walk on the moon. And Dr. Edgar Mitchell tells John Podesta in this email that our friendly ETIs or our compliant ETIs, extraterrestrial intelligence, I believe it was something along the lines of refuse any type of militaristic action in space. And Dr. Edgar Mitchell also told John Podesta that the space race is heating up. And so when we see emails like that and we see the government doesn't comment on it, nor does the mainstream media even ask any of these politicians about it, and these are WikiLeaks emails that are totally, at this point, they're substantiated, I don't know what else I could say. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of whistleblowers, I'm not a big fan of some of the things that have come out in the past couple years, most recently, that have all gotten entangled with the whole QAnon thing. But if you go back before that, there's definitely some interesting folks out there that were on the lecture circuit 
Bill Snyder seems to be like one that you rely on a lot or that you reference a lot because maybe you think he's one of the more credible of his type of whistleblower. The reason why I reference him so much is because he publicly made speeches on things that even today sound crazy, but he said even before we as a collective society even heard the word. I say that because everything he said back in the 90s before he, again, quote unquote, committed suicide is panning out now. Element 115, for example, it was ridiculed until I think it was 2003 or 4, where German scientists were able to, for a fraction of a millisecond, they were able to literally create it or discover it by smashing a bunch of particles together, which is what CERN does. So people like Phil Schneider constantly over, he mentioned adrenochrome before that movie in the 90s that had adrenochrome and it even came out. And then now there's, we have adrenochrome files and we have things like this. So again, the reason why I rely on him so much is because of his consistency. Fair. Yeah, that's a good reason to rely on someone. But man, I love it. This has been one hell of a ride, man. I hope people listening will check out what you do. So tell them more about it. How do they follow up? Thank you. So I'm on Instagram, Generation Z Podcast, no spaces, no capitals or anything. I'm also on Twitter at podcast Z Z E D. And I'm also on Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash generation Z. That's how, that's how we keep the show going. And we're able to support my ability to take the time to do all the research I do. And yeah, that's about it. I'm mainly active on my Instagram though. Fair enough. Right on. Well, awesome, Dave. I do appreciate your time and the work you're doing. We only have a few threads to go on when you get to things this deep. So we do have to speculate a little bit and try to fill in the gaps and you do a great job of doing it. So keep fighting the good fight and take care out there. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. I really do appreciate that. It's been an honor. Another brick in the wall, guys. And what a brick it is. Odd, this one. But people have been telling me they want weird, so I'm trying to give it to you. And Dave's channel, or I mean, I know he releases it as a podcast, Generation Z, but he includes so many good visuals that I always watch his episodes on YouTube. The irony, right? But this really was a crash course in the craziest claims people make in this conspiracy culture. I guess I shouldn't say crazy, but the wildest claims. And I like to at least know what the wildest claims are, because it's my job, and because you can't calibrate your thoughts on where the truth lies if you aren't at least familiar with the extremes. The horseshoe crab blood thing, though, is something I've wanted to get on the THC record for years, actually, because that's a theme that does come up on a lot of these conspiracy forums and stuff. There is something about that blue blood of theirs. Some of the most ancient genetic material still shuffling around in the sand out there. And I read that article that I read just to point out that we have mainstream stories saying that this blood is a big, important part of vaccine development and testing. Maybe the reasons why go a bit deeper than what a website like naturalhistorymuseum.uk is going to tell us. But it's involved. And that's just a strange fact either way. So I've been trying to book shows lately where I'm alternating between super wild and more practical. Ari Asselin, clearly wild. Philip Fairbanks and Recluse, more parapolitical and practical, though pretty dark. 
Dr. Moody, not really that weird, but clearly more on the esoteric mysteries of life side of things. Craig Campobasso, 82 alien races, pretty out there, no question. And then swinging back to Clint Richardson with the gain-of-function stuff, and now we're back in the weird pool with Dave Zed. I'd say it's been a pretty good lineup. I know we had a swing and a miss in there. We don't need to talk about that. Also, it's funny that so many people commented on Clint Richardson sounding like Seth Rogen. I didn't hear it until it was pointed out. And Clint may have the voice, but Dave Zed has the look. And with their powers combined, they make one hell of a Seth Rogen. The cloning centers do good work, it seems. And lots of maybes today. I think I said maybe about 40 times, but you tell me how to thread that needle any better. What I like about my role and position as the host here is I can talk to people about a lot of weird stuff without having to own it myself. I don't claim to have any documents. I don't know any inside sources. I'm just interested in hearing from people who say they do. I think we're all interested, but it is tough to be in the position of trying to explain a lot of this stuff. So I don't know where I land on a lot of the threads we talked about today. I'm definitely open to them. Of course, we know they have campaigns out there to muddy the waters and throw the conspiracy researchers off the scent. So then it becomes even harder to actually know where the truth is. But I am really interested in certain metals and elements that the deep state might have gotten from some sort of occult means. I'm pretty on board with that idea. I side with Chris Knowles when he talks about the Roswell working, that the crashed alien saucer story is probably a cover for something more occulty, because they're not going to want that known that they're doing seances in Lockheed Martin's basement. And a random alien crash at the time probably sounded like a better cover story until it blew up like it did, and then of course they retracted it a day later anyway. But if they have elements and metals that they shouldn't have in this dimension, then there's really no telling what they can do. Is there a breakaway civilization leagues above the rest of us, or are they still poking around like primitive apes trying to figure out stuff that's well beyond their mental faculties? We hear both, so who knows? But I hope you at least had a good time and liked this one, some of my favorite kind of material in here. Not things I want to focus on every week, but to group it all together in one show every couple of months, I'm into that. Gotta keep an eye on these things. <laughs> but of course, THC is all about offering up that first hour for free in hopes that you will sign up for THC+. Once you know you like what I do, Come on in and get the full two-hour episodes, because they are twice as nice. Double your pleasure. Double your fun. Come on now. Once you sign up, I do like to remind people you don't need to get the show from the website. You do get access to a private RSS feed link and can most likely use that on any podcast player that you're using right now. But the full plus show is so much more material, and it's just the way the show is designed. I don't ask you for donations without giving you something in return. It's reciprocal. And if you listen to most of my free episodes, you're really missing the majority of what our guests have to say. But if you're on a podcast app right now, check your show notes. I'm going to try and make Plus a lot easier to sign up for and reduce some of that friction by putting easier links right in the show notes for those that are lazy like I am. I know on Podcast Addict, you can click the support button right there above the show notes and just with a couple of clicks, you've got THC Plus and you're off to the races. 
And with all this talk about shutting down controversial communities, the THC forum and social media platform, it's a good place to be. It's been getting a lot more active lately. Happy to see that. Obviously, it is a bonus for plus people, and that does last a lifetime. And it's a private place for us to hang out, and it's pretty user-friendly and well-designed. I've made some upgrades to it over the last couple of days. I needed to do several rounds of updates so that we can add groups and live chats. A lot of people are unaware, but THC has a 24-7 commercial-free radio stream that plays the most recent five or six episodes on a loop. And you can access that from the menu bar on my website, but I'm also going to add a chat to that so that anyone can pop in and listen live with other people and just throw stuff in the chat and talk to each other. But that will be on the plus side because you need to have a username and password. But either way, it seems like a fun addition to me. So things are good here. Plus, people seem to be happy. I am more appreciative of that support than ever during these weird, crazy times. And for those wondering what extra stuff the plus people heard in this episode, let me tell you, it gets weird. We talked about Dave's coverage of things like Operation Lotus, the biologist who exposed the genetically mutated Nephilim program, 5G and the lizard people, the highest aims of these deepest projects and how reality is actually structured, the field, the holographic-induced prison where non-compliant EBs are sent, we got into what's going on at the Vatican Observatory, Operation Crack, stockpiling E.T. livers to power the 14 sacred books that ripple our dimension. We talked a little bit about Donald Marshall and the cloning centers. That was fun. It's rare that I have a guest who even knows much about Donald Marshall and his claims. And we got into some interesting stuff like messing with human spines, Rh negative blood, and island portals and plasma wormholes. So this one's definitely up there in terms of one of the most extreme and unique episodes lately. And even though we'll never truly know and we can't do much about it anyway, this material is right up my alley. And I'm guessing I'm not alone. Let's make conspiracy fun again. <laughs> so help me help you. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus, treat yourself, and get ready for the return of one of our most popular regular guests next week. And I'll see you then. Much love. Take care out there. Big thanks to Dave. Check out Generation Z when you can. I've done my part. Your move, horseshoe crab blood harvesters, portal openers, and frequency police. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the high side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'd be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'd be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth Through the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench 
from the sulfurous stench. The mask you're given doesn't fit, 'cause you're not one of them. Starting today, you'll make plans to get away. There's no one to hold you down, and the what ifs start to drown. Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare, and the light winks at you, 'cause its life is almost through, but it's holding on to quit time just like you. It's time for the high side chats. 